This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Zachary Lazar, author of five books, including Sway, I Pity the Poor Immigrant, and newly released Vengeance. Lazar is also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Book Review and has written for the New York Times Magazine, the LA Times, and Bomb, among others. His novel Vengeance focuses on the narrator's quest to understand a man who is incarcerated for life at Angola Prison in Louisiana. The narrator meets Kendrick King when he is visiting the prison to watch the Passion Play, and his life and interests become intertwined with King's plight. We began the interview discussing the genesis of vengeance. Well, when I moved to New Orleans in 2011, I started to hear about a photographer, Deborah Luster, who people kept saying I should meet. Deborah is a well-known photographer who's made a lot of work uh, about crime and incarceration, which is very related to the kind of work I do as a writer. And so we finally did meet and... uh, you know, when I was a child, my father was murdered, and I wrote a book about that. And Deborah had read that book by the time I finally met her. I'd seen her photographs. And what's strange is that, uh, like me, Deborah had a parent who was murdered. And both of the murders, oddly enough, happened in the same city, which was Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, they were both contract killings. The same detective worked both of the cases for a while. So there was this rather bizarre the set of coincidences that linked us up. And, uh, you know, here all these years later, we ended up both living in New Orleans. And when I first met Deborah, it turned out we lived two blocks away from each other. She took me up on the roof of her house that first day, and I could see my roof from her roof. So she was about to go to Angola Prison to do a photography project. She's been there uh, many times. And the project she was doing was going to be about this play that the inmates were putting on a passion play, the story of Jesus Christ. And uh, she asked me if I wanted to come along, and I said yes. Uh, and then we ended up spending a whole week there, uh, spending the night on the prison grounds, eating all of our meals with inmates or uh, prison administrators. So it was a very immersive week there. And I came away with a surplus of stories. that I was able to just talk and talk and talk to the inmates. Uh, a lot of times without any supervision, really. So they gave me a lot of very deep personal stories, and I wanted to do something with those stories. So the first thing I did was nonfiction. I wrote a long essay about the experience. But I had a lot more to say, and I'm a fiction writer, so I wanted to figure out a way to use fiction to approach that material. But I also thought it was really important to say all of what I just said to you, which is why I was there in the first place. Um, I think that that subject position was really important to any story I was going to tell because I'm not from Louisiana. Uh, I'm a white person in a very black world in that in, in the in the prison, and uh, all of that is is part of the story. So I ended up coming up with this idea of writing a kind of hybrid book that is it is a novel, and most of it is fiction. Most of it is fiction actually, but it seems like it's all nonfiction. And I had to do it that way because I need to put myself in the book. In your novel, you do tell the story of Kendrick King, and he's someone who the narrator befriends and during this passion play. And Kendrick is has been arrested for murder of someone that he didn't know, but he claims innocence and 
one of the things that the book mulls over is if his story that he's telling the narrator is true. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about how you alighted on this particular story. Like, what what were you looking for out of your true experience to explore in the fiction? Yeah, one of the things that struck me when I was at the prison for that first week was, uh, I think the cliche that people have about people in prison is that they're all going to say, I'm innocent, I don't belong here. Um, and that wasn't true at all. It was, it was almost nobody said that. Everybody, almost everybody told me what had happened and why they were there. I didn't even ask them to do that. But uh, one or two people said, I, I'm innocent, I don't belong here. And out of you know, out of 40 or so people that I interviewed at a pretty great length, only a few of them said that. And those people stayed with me. And I, you know, when somebody says that to you and looks you in the eye and says that to you and you're in prison, it's a powerful experience to have, very a, a troubling experience to have. All of these conversations were troubling, but those ones were really troubling. And you want to know if they're telling you the truth or not. And so I got interested in constructing a story about someone like that. And I wanted to have a story of a, you know, a crime that could be read two ways that you could, you could, you could think that the, uh, the person, Kendrick King, was telling the truth when he says he had nothing to do with his crime. And you could read the same facts a different way and say, well, actually, he's lying. He was there. He was, he was involved in this crime. So it took me about a year to construct the crime and, and how these facts could be looked at the same way. It was very complicated. It wasn't easy. And then constructing ways to tell a story. Once I knew what I thought the facts would be of the crime, I needed to figure out a structure that would be dramatic and suspenseful. And so that was how I kind of come up with the idea of me. Uh, instead of me leaving the prison and going on with my life, I imagined, what if I didn't do that? What if I, what if I got wrapped up in investigating the story of Kendrick King's life and went around and tracked down people that knew Kendrick, his family members, etc., his friends? Um, what would, what could come out of an investigation like that? What would those conversations yield in terms of new information? And uh, that was the story of the book, and that was the structure of the book. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Zachary Lazar, author of the novel Vengeance. You know, this book to me is so much about witness and memory and the stories that we tell ourselves versus maybe the story other people tell about us. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that aspect of it. Right. Well, I've always been really interested in that question of, of um, who are people and who are we? Um, and are, are we really who we think we are? Uh, but when I went to the prison and, and some, you know, so the inmates are putting on a play, they're dressed, they're, eventually they're dressed in costumes. But even before that, they're, they're working, they're rehearsing they're playing these roles, and at the same time that they're rehearsing, they're speaking to me. You know, when they're when they're not practicing, they have some time off. And so the idea of theater and performance was obviously really in the foreground all the time I was there. And people are telling you these personal stories, and they have a they have a, um, a pretty specific motivation for telling you those stories. They want you to perceive them the way that they want to be perceived. And so when you're hearing all these stories of people's lives, people's stories about how they wound up in prison, people's stories of what it's like in prison, you are 
flooded with information and you're trying to kind of assess it and ask questions about, well, uh, you know, are they presenting this story truthfully? And then eventually you get to the, the thought that I don't even know how to, I don't even know what that question would mean. What does it mean to present something truthfully? Um, so it got very confusing. Again, especially when someone says, I'm innocent, I don't belong here. Nothing could be more self-serving as a statement than someone in prison saying, I'm innocent, I don't belong here. I was there as a journalist, so one of your, one of your modes of thought would be to, to be skeptical. So I just felt like you know that, that swirl of questions about who are these folks and, and how can I tell, and also who am I, and, and, and how do I fit into this big mosaic, uh, those were powerful questions that were always with me. And that had a, a huge amount to do with how I ended up setting up this book, structuring this book, uh, constructing it. One of the things that I thought was interesting that wove in through the story, and obviously it's, it's I'm sure you find it a lot in New Orleans, is Katrina and the impact that Katrina had on these families, uh, tearing them apart and, you know, people unable to find their, their kin, their children. And I'm wondering if this was on your mind a lot when you were writing it. You know, Katrina is the September 11th of New Orleans. And all the friends I made who were here, it's, it's a very big part of their lives. Again, this is a work of fiction. I got to choose what I wanted to put in it uh, and how to engineer it. And so I thought, why don't I have one of Kendrick's, one of his girlfriends live in Houston so that I could weave into this book the diaspora of people who, from New Orleans who ended up living in Houston after Katrina. And I'd never been to Houston. So I went to Houston before I did that, I, I did some research and I, I tracked down some people who had left New Orleans and, and set up new lives in Houston, and I, I got together with them and, and interviewed them. And that kind of works its way into the book. In the context of the book, the young woman who goes to Houston uh, uh, evacuating after Katrina, her life is already in total turmoil. Her, her boyfriend and the father of her child is, uh, has been convicted of second-degree murder and is a life sentence in prison. Um, and then there's Katrina. And this makes it even harder for her and her daughter to have any contact with Kendrick. You know, Katrina happened, and it happened in the context of people's lives, which uh, they already had problems, and then you've got this huge problem. So that's why Katrina's in the book. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Zachary Lazar, author of the novel Vengeance. One of the things that you wrote in here, um, the, the, the narrator said, um, he's talking about sort of being, being in the prison as a journalist. And he says, you know, maybe I thought that my identification with people like Kendrick was a move away from the problem of violence, a move from what increasingly felt like an adolescent preoccupation with darkness toward a more mature concern for the problem of injustice. You know, again, we're talking about this narrator whose father was murdered. I'm just wondering if you can talk about this idea of of violence and injustice and if you felt like that was um, something that the book was trying to not just explore but answer. At the beginning of my conversation, I said that I felt like I needed to include myself in this book because of the circumstance of my father, his murder, which was why I was at that prison in the first place. Once I made that decision to have myself in the book, I had to find things to say about my father's murder that I hadn't already said before. And to make it uh, an integral part of this book, which is called Vengeance, 
a lot of people who have a family member who was murdered uh, would understandably have sympathy for the idea of vengeance. They would want vengeance. They would want whoever did that to their family member to pay. I came at that subject differently. Um, when my father was murdered, I was very young. I was six years old. And the, the people responsible for that crime were never brought to justice. So I grew up from a very early age with the firsthand experience of not having vengeance, not, not being available, and in fact making me feel a little ridiculous. Uh, being a child, wanting that, um, is uh, uh, there was nothing I could do. It made me philosophical. So when I got to Angola and started talking to people who, unlike Kendrick, many of them were people who committed violent crimes, uh, I was still struck by this channel of communication we had. It just occurred to me that we had a lot more in common than you might expect, that we were not on opposite sides of some equation, but rather we were, we were sort of swimming in this sea of, of, of violence and its, and its consequences, and that somehow or another we had a lot in common because of, uh, because of it. And so if you start thinking that way, I think more and more uh, you need to start questioning the idea of vengeance. Uh, you need to start asking what good does it do to put uh, a 19-year-old kid in prison for the rest of his life because he committed an act of violence when he was 19. Now he's 50. He's not the same person. What purpose is this serving? I don't want to sound like a bleeding heart, but I, I, I probably am. But, uh, you know, when you, when you weigh that bleeding heart stuff against the fact that my father was murdered, I think it becomes more complicated. So the book is called Vengeance. It's a, to me, it's a critique of vengeance. Um, that, that I want the reader to, by the end of this book, feel strongly that whatever happened with Kendrick, whether you think he was part of this crime or not, I think you should feel certain that he doesn't belong where he is. So for you in your life as a young child, it sounds like you were very young when your dad was murdered. And I don't know if, you know, I'm curious to hear about maybe the discussions you had about with your mother, because I don't know that vengeance would be the first thing that a little kid thinks of. It just seems like a more sophisticated concept. So I'm just wondering if you think back to that age where this idea of going out and finding the person and arresting them, if you were too young to understand that or if you did understand that at the time and some of your mother's opinions about that. I absolutely felt that way as a child. I uh, didn't want to arrest him. I wanted to kill him. My older half-brother had the same thought. He was a little. He was quite a bit older than me. And uh, it, you know, it really messed him up for a while. So those are very natural thoughts. You know, I, I would fantasize about it. I, I think that's part of having someone close to you murdered. Is it, 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 it's a very ugly thing. It's not just a sad thing. It's an ugly thing. And that ugliness seeps into you, even if you're six years old, seven years old, eight years old. You know, you're a child. And I was a sweet child. So that, that entered my life whether I wanted to or not. There was not much my mother could do about that. I think that it was just totally overwhelming for the family, totally devastating. I think it was years before we even could have any sense of how devastated we were by it. So in terms of what guidance my mother could have given to me at that time, I don't think there was anything she could have said. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Zachary Lazar, author of the novel Vengeance. Tell us a little bit about Kendrick and why he was the character you created. What were the interesting things about him that you wanted to put on the page? Yeah, I mean, Kendrick is a, uh, 
a young black man from New Orleans from a certain social bracket within that. And I wanted Kendrick to be kind of closer to a middle class part of the bracket. He's been to high school. He's He's done some community college. His family are, are, are working class people. Um, he is not, in other words, a sort of stereotype of, oh, someone who is, is completely down and out and starts selling crack on the street when he's, when he's a teenager. He's not that. He is also a thoughtful person, even though he does come from a place where, for example, his brother, his older brother, goes on to build himself up and become an architect, a successful architect, and Kendrick kind of had some of those possibilities in his life. He was also in a, in a place where it was very easy not to follow through on all of those things. You know, I, th- I felt like in creating Kendrick's character, I, I thought that he's not simply a product of his environment, so to speak. Um, he's a product of his own choices, but he is also a product of his environment. He's, he's in this area where he has less latitude than someone like I did when I was growing up. And then because he goes to prison when he's so young and because he's a sort of thoughtful and inquisitive person, uh, he ends up becoming an autodidact. He ends up reading all kinds of things when he's in prison and building his mind and uh, engaging with philosophy. And that also was something that I just saw firsthand a lot when I was at the prison that was really striking to me is, is how many philosophical people I, I encountered. They were philosophical because, like Kendrick, they're smart, but also um, most of them were serving life sentences or sentences so long that the expectation is they'll never get out of prison. And prison is a very unpleasant place to be. And that can make you philosophical because, you you know, how is this my life? How can it be my life? And what, there's so much more to me than this. Um, how, do I, how do I make any sense of that? And so uh, it, it does send people to religion, to philosophy, to literature, all those things. In the book, this passion play is a big part of it. I mean, it's it's always interesting because it is, you know, it's a d- deeply religious play. It's the story of, of Jesus. And religion often comes as a form of true salvation in prison, and we see that with Kendrick. Now, I'm assuming, you know, you saw the real passion play, but it also has so much, um, it can have so much meaning and symbolism and I'm just wondering about your experience of really seeing that and then actually putting it into the book. And did you see people not necessarily change over the years because of this play, but um, respond to it in a way that maybe you didn't see if you visited the jail on an ordinary day? It's a great question. And the answer is yes and no. Um, the play had been done twice. So the, this was the second round. And I talked to Many people, many prisoners who were in the play, whose lives had been enormously changed by being in the play, they had stopped acting out, they stopped having write-ups and disciplinary problems, and it had been a year, so they sustained that for a year. They they had felt humanized by this play because they were treated uh, like people that were brought to perform this play in front of an audience of free people who, who looked at them differently. And they had, during the rehearsals and the performances, they had a great deal of, of uh, relative freedom. They brought women inmates, for example, from the, the women's penitentiary to be in the play. So it was a chance, a very unusual chance for men and women to be in the same space. And then there was this whole part about religious salvation. The story is a message of, of salvation. It's the story of Jesus. And that there were many people who expressed to me their religious transformations during this play. And so I think, yeah, there was, there, was, there was a lot of that. 
that I was trying to parse out. I'm a skeptical person myself, so I was trying to go deep and sort of see how how you know how much of a transformation is that. I was just back at the prison two days ago talking to one of the guys who's a friend now who was in the play, and I and he was catching me up on the, several of the other people who were in the play, some of whom are not doing very well. And he said to me that there was just this this very special, unprecedented kind of time period where while they were putting on that play, while they were doing these rehearsals, they were really supportive of each other. They all became stronger and they all helped each other become stronger and everybody was doing great. And that after the play was over, you know, some people kept kept doing very well, including himself, um, some people not. And so it was a very moving thing to watch. I mean, I'm not Christian, I'm Jewish, right? It's, uh, um, it's a religious tradition that is I've actually I've always found it kind of uh, the story of Christ is a very beautiful story to me. Um, and, and watching that all play out was was very beautiful. I think as a, as a, someone who also needs to be uh, skeptical and, and, and inquisitive, you know, there's a there was a use for this play. Um, this is a play that was put on for a reason that had to do not just with with spreading the message of, of Christianity, but but with kind of cementing Christianity as a, as a religion in that institution and making the institution look good. And so there is some cynical aspect to that, I think. What is it that you hope people walk away with from this this novel? Well, I, a, a few things. I mean, I think I think that this book, in a very simple way, just, just uh, portrays an evolving friendship between someone like me who's white, educated, middle class, uh, with a black man in prison, and I think it does that without being cheap. And I think just having that uh, out there is, is valuable. But I also think that the book should make people uncomfortable, as it made me uncomfortable when I was writing it, which is to say that no matter where you are in the political spectrum, even if you are a right-thinking liberal person like me, um, you're still going to be made uncomfortable by this book because it, it forces you to, I think, confront biases that are just part of our culture. I don't know. I, I don't think a book like this or any book really can is going to change public policy. But I think you know, live in that kind of culture. But I think that uh, it can make people think about things in a new way if they read it, and that's valuable. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Zachary Lazar, author of the novel Vengeance. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So this is from uh, one of my mentors and one of my favorite writers, Deborah Eisenberg, a short story writer. And this is from a book of her, uh, a story called Some Other Better Auto. And I'll just read uh, the very last part of the story. The story is, the Otto of the story uh, is a very irritable person whose sister has, has lost her mind. She was a brilliant brilliant uh, person who is now incapacitated and hospitalized forever. And uh, he's been taking that out on his partner, William, who is a very sweet man. And, and he's just been bickering and he's been terrible. And this is the very end of the story. So Otto is thinking about his sister. The way they had smiled at one another, she and that doctor. What can you do, their smiles had said. The handsome doctor in his handsome doctor suit and Sharon in her disheveled lunatic suit. What a charade. In this life, Sharon's little spark of consciousness would be costumed inescapably as a waif at the margins of metal organization, and the doctors would be costumed inescapably as a flashing exemplar of supreme confidence. 
in this life, and frankly, there would be no other. The hospital was where they would meet. Otto, a hand was resting on Otto's shoulder. William, Otto said. It was William. They were in the clean, dim kitchen. The full moon had risen high over the neighbor's buildings where the lights were almost all out. Had he been asleep? He blinked up at William, whose face, shadowed against the light of the night sky, was as inflected, as ample in mystery as the face in the moon. It's late, my darling, Otto said. I'm tired. What are we doing down here? And that's the end of the story. And I just love the last sentence of that story, which is a very long story, because in the line of dialogue, Otto says, what are we doing down here? And what he means literally is, what, what are we, it's late at night, why are we in the kitchen instead of in bed? Um, but it's one of those magical moments in fiction where that, that thing that he says also is indicative of the whole story. What are we doing down here? What are we doing on planet Earth? How, how, are we, how can we understand the fact that we are here in this lovely apartment in Manhattan and, and his sister is over there in the hospital and will never come out. Um, how do we live with that? What are we doing down here? Um, that's the kind of thing in fiction that you can't plan. You just write it and you see it. And, and I don't know what Deborah uh, must have felt when she wrote that line and knew that that was the end of the sentence, but the end of the whole story, rather. But it, it must have been a good feeling. Can you read something that you wrote that maybe it was tricky to write or changed a lot from the first draft? Um, so what I'm going to read from my own work is, um, so the, the book is, is this narrator going around uh, talking to people who knew Kendrick to try to get to the bottom of the story. And eventually I needed to have a character who was going to reveal uh, as much as possible what really happened. The character's name is Mason. And he's completely fictional. He's completely made up. And I needed to work against this kind of Scooby-Doo moment where Mason, you know, sort of speaks up and says, well, this is what really happened, blah, 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 blah. Um, it was a moment of real artificiality in the book that I needed to try to make seem like it wasn't artificial. So this scene happens in Meridian, Mississippi, which I kind of just picked because I've driven through it a bunch of times. And this is how I try to set up Mason as a character instead of just a sort of Scooby-Doo little plot point. When I went back to the parking lot, I saw Mason this time, smoking a cigarette beneath the roof of a band shell with white wooden pillars, dwarfed by the branches of a tree that grew up beside it. He wore a black winter coat and a black knit cap and dark sweatpants. He didn't acknowledge me as I approached. When I called out his name, he just looked down at the ground, and for a moment I wasn't sure it was him, and yet I could feel even from that distance that it was. I stood at the foot of the bandshell, and he looked down at me briefly, then turned his eyes to the distance. He asked me how Sonia was. He said he'd like to go visit Sonia one of these days in New Orleans, that he hadn't been down there in many years. He used to have a son there, he said, but their son lived now with his mother up north in Delaware. Heroin, he said, pronouncing it heron. He told me about that part of his life already, he said. We were standing now at the bottom of the band show, and he pulled from his back pants pocket a rubber-banded stack of small pamphlets. I looked into his eyes, and I wondered if he was high or if that was just how he appeared, as he told me about the religious faith described in the pamphlet. 
Inside were the usual admonitions. If you should die today, where would you spend eternity? Every person born into this world inherited a sinful nature. This sinful nature produces all sorts of evil deeds. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Just believing intellectually that you are a sinner, that God loves you, and that Christ died for you is not enough. That goes on from there. Do you want to talk about this, why you picked this a little more? I needed my, the character Mason to simply be a mouthpiece for these facts that I needed to come out in the story. But uh, as someone who wants to write well, I didn't want him to just be a mouthpiece saying this information that I needed him to say. So I needed to characterize him. And I wanted this scene to have uh, atmosphere. And I wanted Mason, in addition to being this mouthpiece, to also add something to the picture of Kendrick and his world. Mason was Kendrick, his Kendrick's cousin. They were close growing up. They spent a lot of time together as adolescents, and they were good friends at the time of the crime that Kendrick is in prison for. And so Kendrick, we know, is in prison. Mason, who in, in this scene admits that he was tangentially involved in this crime or what led up to the crime, where is he? He's, he's not in prison. Um, whatever the consequences were of what they were up to that led to this murder, uh, Mason at least is not in prison for it. But where is he uh, if he's not in prison? And where is he? He's, he's struggling with addiction, with heroin addiction. He's just struggling with life. He was just in jail himself for five years, I think. He's just gotten out of, of this prison in Mississippi, and he has discovered religion in there, and that's why he's got these pamphlets. And so when he's talking to the narrator, he's not just telling the narrator the story of Kendrick, he's telling his own story. And his own story is, I don't want to sound totally pretentious, but it has a little bit in common with Dante's Inferno, which is a, you know, a big cast of characters giving us what their lives in hell are like. And Mason even though he's not in prison right now, his life is hellish. And so he's, he's giving a monologue in this scene. And it was a very challenging scene to write because, first of all, like I said, I needed him to reveal this information about the crime in a kind of rickety crime novel sort of way. But I also wanted him to be uh, a three-dimensional character. And he needed to do all of this in the language of a black man from the South. And that's not the language I speak. So working on his dialogue was, could be challenging, too. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Zachary Lazar, author of the novel Vengeance. Where do you write? Well, I write um, mostly in my office at home. I have now a little cubicle at, in the library at Tulane University where I teach which is tiny and which was very useful when I was writing. There's, there's several interrogation scenes in this novel where Kendrick is in this tiny little room with a detective who's um, coercing him to confess to this crime. And to write those scenes in this tiny little room of my own um, was pretty effective. It was very helpful. What do you do to get away from writing? Walking, because writing is a kind of a trance state for me. And so I need to get out of my brain after I, after I write, I like to take a walk and just uh, get the body moving, get the blood pumping. And in the mornings, I usually run. I, 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 somehow running and walking moderates the brain energy and, and uh, keeps me sane, so, so close to sane. Whereas writing, again, especially because I write so much about crime and this kind of grievous stuff, uh, it takes you to some you know, emotional terrain that, is, that can be pretty tricky to, to go back to regular life after that. So walking helps. Now, who do you show your work to first to get feedback? 
there's many different writer friends I have that I share the work to, um, and it, it changes. Um, people have complicated lives, especially as they get older. They have children. They have this. They have their own work they're working on. So um, fortunately for me, I have many writer friends who I can share work to. How have you dealt with rejection? It's 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 very unpleasant. <laughs> um, I published my first novel when I was still in my twenties. It was an okay book. It wasn't it wasn't a great book. And then it was a long time before I published my second book, which was called Sway, a novel, which is the one that kind of made made my life possible now. And so there were ten years of extreme self doubt and failure and rejection. And I still feel a lot of that. I mean, I've written four books that I think are really extraordinary, but I think I'm still under the radar. And uh, you have to just be strong and uh, you have to develop a sense of yourself that is not related to other people's view of yourself. You have to have to have a sense of self. And what is your favorite word? Oh, my favorite word is language, of course. <laughs> but I just love also not only what it means, but the sound language. I think it's a beautiful sounding word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Zachary Lazar, author of the novel Vengeance. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.